Hi everyone. Um, today we're gonna do something a little bit different uh, due to recent events and high demand. I'm actually losing my voice a little bit, so I'm sorry about that. Hopefully it's not like awful on your ears, but this is episode nine. My name is Macy and you're listening to Reels and Records. I've been dying to talk about these movies. The past few months have been a field day for film majors. Basically what's gonna happen is that I'm gonna release two episodes today, back to back. Um, and those episodes, those two movies, of course, are gonna be none other than Oppenheimer, directed by Christopher Nolan, and Barbie, directed by Greta Gerwig. I'll preface this by getting something out of the way, though I'm a huge fan of comparing both of these films. Um, I will admit they're relatively incomparable. I mean, one is about the disastrous outcome of a world where men are systematically in control of everything, and the other is not about that exact same thing. Aside from, <laughs> aside from pre-written jokes that I put into the script of this episode, it's impossible to decipher which film is better without looking through a biased lens, which makes it quite difficult to compare the soundtracks. So that is not what I will be doing today. I also will confess, I did see Barbie first, and although I am an avid Chris Nolan fan, Greta Gerwig owns my whole life, and she is the root of nearly all my inspiration. Um, and I'll also say that I did grow up with Barbies in hand, watching only the realest of cinema, things like Barbie and the Diamond Castle, Princess and the Popper, and such. I'm also a girl, um, so the Barbie movie was made for me, despite it knowing exactly how to reach all audiences, regardless of its main target. All right, so let's get right into this. This episode is for Oppenheimer, directed by Christopher Nolan, and released a little over a month ago, I think. I don't know, I've been writing this for a long time, so that might be inaccurate now, but... <laughs> the soundtrack for Oppenheimer was done by Swedish composer uh, Ludwig Göransson. Gorenson has composed the scores for movies like Black Panther and Creed and TV shows like The Mandalorian. This is only the second time that Nolan has strayed away from using Hans Zimmer or David Yulian um, to compose his film scores. The first was with his movie Tenet. And as much as I love Hans Zimmer, I, I love him. I will say that. This was kind of next level. This is a wildly exciting score to talk about. I feel like I have almost too much to say. But as a whole, it's one of the most eerily atmospheric scores I've ever heard, leaning so heavily on dissonance, which is something I love, and we'll talk about later, um, and also straight up discomfort to create this entirely new audible character in the film. I've talked about it before, I think, how music becomes a character. Its importance to the film becomes as crucial as any character's part in it. But this score doesn't stand alone as a new character. It lets us into the mind of our main character, J. Robert Oppenheimer. The whole film is clearly from his perspective, and so many shots indicate solely what his inner thoughts are. The music does as well. Of course it does. There's a quote from an interview with NME where Gorenson says, One of the early ideas that Chris had was the use of the violin. Oppenheimer was a genius with a lot of complex layers underneath. With the solo violin, you can play the most beautiful romantic vibrato, but then if you press down the bow heavily and change the speed, you can make something horrific, manic, or neurotic in a split second. Chris and I were constantly talking about going in and out of different emotions." End of quote. Um, violin is just one of those instruments um, where you can communicate as many emotions as a human can. It's so often described as and compared to a human voice. It's the main instrument used in the soundtrack because 
I think they wanted to convey that vast and complex theme of humanity. When they were talking about the two different sides of, or tones of violin, it also so closely relates to the moral dilemma in creating a nuclear bomb. I read a Stanford research paper from 2016 called Oppenheimer's Dilemma, written by Tim Anderson, and it said that, quote, Oppenheimer immediately understood the true power of the bomb. Never before had mankind possessed destructive power that truly posed a threat to civilization. And later that same article said, Oppenheimer believed that he had blood on his hands for his role in the development of the atomic bomb. This plays out in the soundtrack, and we can hear the power struggles and questioning motives. One of the strongest examples of this is the main theme, a track titled Can You Hear the Music? There are heaps and bounds of tension written into this track. It's an emotion that the running strings and heavy bass line draw attention to. The pace is constantly quickening in a way that an anxious heartbeat would. I read in another article by Limelight Magazine that this takes inspiration from the soundtrack for Psycho, which is well known for its screeching violin likely played on or above the bridge of the violin. Um, and there's a good chance that that's the most iconic song in a horror movie ever. So to take inspiration from what every human subconsciously connects to, pure horror, creates exactly the right shade of fear and terror to parallel a real-life event such as this. The same article mentions Mozart's Lacrimosa from Requiem, which is referenced in the score of the scene where the scientists learn of the nuclear bombing of Japan. And I believe the song is called What Have We Done? The difficult part about doing episodes on recent releases is that I can't just pull up the scene and I and like know exactly what song it is, um, which is rough, but we'll make it work. Um, the article describes that Mozart's Requiem is also known as Mass for the Dead, and it was the last piece he ever composed. He died before it was finished, so its complete form was curated by a handful of others. The whole history is pretty complex in, in the dark, but you can hear throughout the piece that Mozart is channeling this fear of his own upcoming death, which is so fascinating. And because of that, there's this constant fight between the piece being a mass, which is supposed to provide catharsis to those in mourning, and it being the end of Mozart's life, scattered about with fear and uncertainty. The section that specifically is titled Lacrimosa is extremely interesting because, as written in an article by Amelie No Morin, one account states that while writing the Lacrimosa, a movement in the mass, Mozart was so terrified by the words he was writing that he stopped after eight bars and he died before he could ever finish it. And I have those eight bars of lyrics right here in front of me. Um, they are, mournful that day when, the, when from the ashes shall rise a guilty man to be judged. Lord, have mercy on him. Gentle Lord Jesus, grant them eternal rest. Amen. I know this is so deep and eerie um, and emotional, but the only thing I can think of when I hear this song is Fleabag, even though it's not even the song that plays at the end of each episode. I really wonder what Mozart would think of Fleabag. I have a feeling he'd appreciate it. Maybe not love it, but at least appreciate. Uh, <laughs> the actual Lacrimosa is found in a lot of other movies and shows, um, 
is very, very well known. It's in The Big Lebowski, The Crown, Venom, and obviously the movie about Mozart called Amadeus. Anyways, the entire symbolism in referencing this piece conveys that inner conflict of creation and death, responsibility and blame. The emotional contrast is thoroughly communicated, and the choice to do so was monumental. Speaking of contrast, which is my favorite thing in the world, um, let's talk about the track called Meeting Kitty, which is so vastly different from the fast-paced, high-tension, pure anxiety pieces in the score so far. There's a point in the song around three minutes that shows um, it slows down into this soft and calming synth with the orchestral strings in the background for once, while a harp-like sound takes the melody. The first thought I had about this change in melody was that it sounded so extremely familiar. It's a little bit like Avatar, The Last Airbender, that one song that's like doo 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 doo. Um, but I also feel like I've made a podcast episode on it and I need to find out what it is. It's possibly everything ever all at once. Let me look it up. It could be like Wayman Cries or Specks of Time. Wait. In Another Life. It might be In Another Life because I remember that one was one of the slow ones too. Oh my gosh. I never. It totally is this one. Oh, I was so right. I am so good at this. Okay. Um, <laughs> that was really lucky, actually. Anyways, they're, they're super similar. Not the same key, but not too far off. Anyways, this track is beautiful, and I love it. Um, I love that it has separate sections that reflect on the different roles that Kitty plays in Oppenheimer um, in Oppie's life. Which is <laughs> the funniest part of the movie that they call him Oppie. It's so, it's so baby girl. I love it. Uh, the first section feels like meeting some new love interest. It's slow and careful. The droning bass note conveys that there's a carefulness. And then the second section is really similar at first, but the difference is that there's a cello melody taking the lead. And then it begins to pick up speed, and it becomes this adventuring piece with more meaning and emotional content. And with that enhanced emotional content comes a slight bit of anxiety as well. The movie just never stops with anxiety. It was so unhealthy to watch. I felt like I was going to pass out. Um, which is funny that it's, it's funny that I say that because the next section it actually does tone it down. Uh, this is the section I talked about earlier: the slow and soft strings, the comforting repetitive melody, the everything everywhere all at once similarities, etc., etc. Funny word. The next section in the meeting kitty song comes in with a ticking clock noise, and I don't even feel like I have to explain why. That's as brilliant as it is because. It's a nuclear bomb movie. Of course, they're going to use a ticking clock in the score. Uh, I could even just say that it's a Christopher Nolan movie, and that would be enough to assume that it would have a ticking clock in the score. So, 
I want to go ahead and explain dissonance now because it plays such a massive role in the tracks that I'm about to talk about. Dissonance, specifically in music, is when notes are played together that don't harmonize or seem to fit right together. It leaves the listener super, super uncomfortable until it hopefully resolves into a harmonizing chord to ease the tension. But the thing is, no one says that you have to ease the tension, and more often than not in the soundtrack, they don't. Near the end of the track called The Trial, there's a really great example of this. The timestamp is around four minutes, nine seconds. There's this wicked stack of strings that imitate sirens. It makes me feel nauseous. It's also prevalent in the beginning of a track called Manhattan Project. Almost instantly, we hear all of the conflicting strings. And then Fission, the very first track, also has a near unbearable fit of dissonance. It makes me want to curl up into a ball on the floor. It's insane how some of the instruments and noises and sounds used in songs like Ground Zero, which has a st like a static sound underneath the entire beginning of the track. Um, a song called Trinity with insane tremolo that would make my hand go numb to play. Um, and one that I definitely want to dive into called American Prometheus. It has an extremely grand symphonic elephant trunk sounding instrument. And this is used very often throughout the score. It feels very overwhelming and exalting and communicates that feeling to the audience of being knee-deep in something far bigger than yourself. American Prometheus is a title filled to the brim with purpose. It's, of course, the title of Oppenheimer's 20, 20, 2005 bibliography written by Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin. Um, but it's titled that way for a reason. Prometheus was the dude who stole fire from the gods and brought it to mankind, um, and then was eternally punished for it, um, nailed or chained to a mountain, something really harsh like that. I think he was eaten alive by eagles every day too, which is so creative. An article written by Kopal Kumari, I hope I'm saying that right, summarizes it as such. Quote, Oppenheimer's gift to humanity, like that of Prometheus, was simultaneously a miracle and blazing destruction, a force unlike anything that civilization had before devised. And like Prometheus, sometimes referred to as the father of humanity, Oppenheimer, father of the atomic bomb, didn't initially grasp the full scope of how his invention would reshape the world going forward. There is so much thought put into making this score. For example, Many tracks feature a synthesizer, which, weird fun fact, was a common feature in nuclear-themed film and television episodes as early as the 1960s. Another example, Gorenson tailored the score directly to Killian Murphy's portrayal of Oppenheimer, admitting that it was really difficult because Murphy's portrayal is, and I quote, almost inhuman. There's even a wild detail about one specific scene in the beginning, um, when Oppenheimer starts teaching a class. Gorenson explains it in an interview with Variety, saying, that the scene starts with a haunting melody, which starts off as an intimate solo violin, 
When you see him in class, there's one person, followed by four people joining him, so we added four violins. And when the whole class shows up, we have an entire orchestra come in with more prominent harps and piano. So, like, as the class grew, they added more violins to the score to, <laughs> to signify that, which is sick. I feel like I could have a 10-minute segment of just insane facts and small details poured into the making of the score. There's so many things to appreciate. Too many. Something else that I love is that the soundtrack is almost constantly playing throughout the movie. A solid two and a half hours out of three hours of film, which amplifies the impact when we find ourselves in complete silence. When the first test bomb is detonated, the audience seems to go completely deaf. And the sound cuts out for so long that we forget to be alarmed, effectively authenticating our reaction to the singular event we were seemingly prepared for. A quote from Reba A. Wisner says, We saw the explosion's catastrophic events and the reaction of the scientists, including Oppenheimer, but by the time we heard it, it almost felt like we forgot it would make a sound. This delay of sound in favor of focusing on the fireball's image was a common tactic in earlier depictions of nuclear detonations in film and television. There were so many cases of stunning sound design like this. Um, It happens again closer to the end of the film when Oppenheimer is disturbed and uneasy about being worshipped and applauded for creating a weapon of mass destruction that would be used whether he ethically felt it should be or not. Switching gears a bit, I want to go back to talking about the songs on the score that lean further towards the human side of the story. I want to read an excerpt from an article by Jonathan Broxton that explains the dynamic between science and humanity really well um, in the movie. Some songs represent the highly scientific side of the story. They have a sharp and inquisitive edge and are difficult to connect with on an emotional level, much like the scientific concepts themselves that are discussed throughout the story. In several of these cues, Gorenson's Gorenson's strings tumble and fall and collapse in on themselves, perhaps in a manner that intended to depict the way a nuclear bomb is structured. And while they are sometimes very challenging, they add a level of intensity to the score that you can feel in your stomach. The warmer string tones, which combined with the delicate harp textures and occasional pianos, speak more to Oppenheimer's personal life, his relationships with his colleagues, with his wife Kitty and his mistress Jean, and so on. They're very... These are very prominent in cues like the aforementioned fission, lowly shoe salesman, the classically elegant quantum mechanics, the unexpectedly soothing groves, the Vivaldi-esque American Prometheus, and power stays in the shadows, among others. Those are all song titles. Back to the quote. There are even some hints of jazz in the thematic ideas in Meeting Kitty, which are as lovely as they are unexpected. End quote. (laughs) I love the amount of effort put into making Oppenheimer feel like a real person. And I'm not saying that because it isn't a real person. He definitely is real. But from a film standpoint, it's really, really important to make the audience connect and empathize with your characters. This is especially important for biopics because history doesn't tend to record the emotional state of its pro and antagonists. Oppenheimer is a character that is much more complex than most, and that makes it extremely hard to read him. He faced innumerable amounts of inner turmoil and outer, very public criticism. And one of the only ways we're truly allowed to roam free in his thoughts is via soundtrack. By allowing the audience a method to access that side of him, it creates an empathetic relationship that traps you into feeling the exact same moral controversy that Oppenheimer battles. Okay, finally, let's talk about the last few tracks. Um, Track 23 is called Destroyer of Worlds, and track 24 is called Oppenheimer. 
These two tracks reprise the theme um, that we hear originally in track two, Can You Hear the Music? It's that simple but unfathomably complex two-note melody where the first note bends and liquefies into the second. Destroyer of Worlds begins in a familiar, familiarly, familiarly, <laughs> familiarly peaceful manner, creating a sort of post-explosion disbelief. But we jump right back into the consequences of such events, and that original theme from Can You Hear the Music arrives, mirroring that same accelerating tempo every four measures. Oppenheimer, track 24, stops, uh, starts in a similar way. Steadily slow and pensive, it builds up much more gradually than track 23, but really carries a similar emotion of almost paradoxical uncertainty and closure combined. be a liar if I said I didn't expect this to absolutely sweep awards. It's just too well made. And despite it being so well made, it without a doubt would not be anywhere without this gargantuan triumph of a soundtrack. That's all I have to say for today, I think. I genuinely could keep going if it was necessary, but thank you for listening to Reels and Records episode 9. Now head over to episode 10, which is out as we speak, and listen to me pine over the masterpiece of a movie that is Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Thanks, guys. Well, uh, I'll see you over there, I guess. <laughs> Bye.